Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Long Final, Ireland's aviation podcast. From Squawk 7000. Welcome to this special episode of Long Final from Squawk 7000. And the reason we're doing this is because there's a very interesting event happening this Monday evening, the 12th of April. And I'm joined by Alan Phelan and Teddy Fennelly. You're both very welcome along to Squawk 7000. Alan, I'm going to start with you, throw you in the deep end there. What is happening on Monday and why should we make sure we're there? Yes, on Monday evening, uh, we're hosting a Zoom event to commemorate the first east-to-west transatlantic flight crossing by the Bremen. On board was a a very uh, famous Irishman, Colonel James Fitzmaurice, uh, accompanied by two German aviators. Uh, This happened on the 12th of April, 1928. And uh, we in Port Leash have a special uh, place in our hearts for Colonel Fitzmaurice because he he wasn't born here, but he he spent his formative years here and he's uh, he's, uh, held, like say, in high regard here in Port Leash. And over the last uh, number of years, uh, we've tried to commemorate this event uh, annually. And Teddy, uh, who's on the call today, has been deeply involved in the Fitzmaurice uh, story from way back, going back to the 1970s, even for the 50th anniversary. So myself and Teddy have uh, taken up the mantle to keep the Fitzmaurice story alive here in Port Leash. And Teddy, you, you're a newspaper man by, by profession. So what was your interest in? When did you first come across the Colonel? Well, it was purely accidental, shall we say. Um, <clears throat> I was working with the local newspaper, the Leinster Express, here in Port Leash. I come from Port Leash. I had worked uh, in many places before that, but uh, coming back to Port Leash, um, uh, I became more aware of things that uh, were happening in the town and had happened in the town. Um, I remember many years back in my youth, um, (laughs) (laughs) and that uh, many years ago, as you know, as you can see, but uh, my father actually went to school with James Fitzmaurice. And uh, he often mentioned that when I was growing up about, uh, you know, uh, in the class and that, not much about the background. I never heard much about the background to Colonel Fitzmaurice when I was growing up, actually, at all. Mm. But uh, when I was reading some article, perhaps back in the 70s, uh, probably a, an anniversary on uh, on the flight, uh, I 
became interested again in Cornell Fitzmaurice. And I researched uh, his background. And um, eventually, um, when I became editor of the paper, of course, I had plenty of time to, <laughs> to, to, do, to do research and writing and that. But uh, when you're busy, you often do things, more things than when you're not busy. But I've heard that phrase, sometimes if you want something done, ask a busy man. Is that it? Man, exactly. Yeah. Perhaps. Uh, but uh, I wrote a book on Colonel James Fitzmaurice. That was in 1997. It was in advance of his uh, 100th birthday. Mm. He had been long dead at that time. I think he died in 1967. But however, um, the, the book anyway, uh, uh, caused a lot of ripples around and it, it brought back uh, Colonel James Fitzmaurice into focus again. And it's, uh, I think, I still think it's a brilliant story. And he was a brilliant man. Oh, do you know, you, you, I'm, I'm dying to get into the into the depth of this particular story because, you know, as you say, growing up and, and being interested in aviation, you wouldn't know about the man. You wouldn't hear about him. But yet if you go to Baldonnel, there is a, a spot there on the apron which, which commemorates uh, where the aircraft left from. I, I'm curious to know how come he was almost written out of our, our aviation history in the first place? What happened? Well, that is a very good question. And it's a question I didn't answer in my book, actually. But... Uh, I, I think that uh, Fitzmaurice he alienated certain people and uh, in different ways. Uh, when he came back to the country, he 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 uh, he learned all his piloting skills, of course, with the RAF, and he came back as a highly qualified pilot, and he became uh, one of the first uh, pilots to join the Irish Air Corps. Right. So that was his background. But he came back; he had served in the British Army. And his British Army experiences was at, at the front a lot of the time mm. in the Battle of the Somme and other and other uh, significant encounters there in the First World War. So he had huge experience, but he came back as an ex-British Army man. So, so we're almost talking um, almost civil war politics might have impinged on that a little bit. There, we're talking about civil war politics when he came back, joined the Irish Air Corps in 1922. Uh, it was just probably at the start of the Civil War. Mm. It was just after the foundation of the Irish Free State. And he, and he was blackmailed, actually, uh, because of his background. But And he, he was brought before a tribunal and he had to prove himself that he hadn't been involved in things that he was accused of being involved in. But he came out squeaky clean out of the whole thing and, and it was a terrible, terrible experience for him. And I have that, exp I have that uh, uh, experience uh, um, recounted in the book, but but in later years, he spent his uh, early uh, his early uh, teenage years in the British Army. He joined at seventeen years of age. He fought at the Battle of the Somme at, nine, at eighteen years of age. He qualified as as a pilot in the in the in the, in the RAF, uh, which was the RFC at the time. As a, as a 20 year old so he to, to be to be successful he knew he had to become one of the boys shall we say mm -hmm. but but he acquired a, a very very distinctive oh, Oxford Cambridge accent as British officers uh, they would have done at the time it wouldn't have helped him yeah and and and, and, and he, he but remember at the time, it was very customary for even educated Irish people 
to mm. to to acquire a, 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 some sort of an an, an accent, and and. And even on RTE, shall we say, I remember <laughs> that there was a famous broadcaster. He was sacked because he had such an accent. Yes. So, but but in any case, Fitzmaurice, uh, if you listen to uh, some of his uh, his speeches and that, he had a very distinctive English accent, and this alienated him very very much so against uh, a lot of the Irish people. T- Teddy, I, I read as well that uh, he, he said towards the end of his life about the fact that uh, how we in Ireland tend to treat people like that. Uh, that there's quite an interesting uh, quote from him, I think. Yeah, well, he has a lot of quotes and a lot of good, very, very good quotes. I think that I think that he he's, he he was a much better person than he came across. From from everything he did was for either for the good of the country, apart from the good for himself. But I mean that uh, everybody tries to look after themselves and he had to particularly mm. had a very interesting uh, life from from his early days but he he tried to do the best for himself firstly but he tried to do the best for his country mm. and and of course the, the flight and, and in other matters he led his life on the line for his country shall we say and shall I also say that when he made the famous flight as I call it in 1928 the first east-west transatlantic flight he was dressed in the Irish Air Corps uniform. Now, Ireland at the time was only six years old and is part of the British Empire still. But he was very proud to wear that uniform. And not only did he wear it on the flight, he wore it at every event in America and all the countries he went to afterwards. He carried the Irish tricolour, which was practically unknown at the time, on the flight with him. And the whole New York was, was decorated when they were celebrating the, the, the flight in New York. So it was decorated with Irish tricolours. This was mm. a new country, remember. So, mm. I mean, he, you could say, put Ireland on the map, on the international map. We have a, um, a, um, an input from the Air Corps on Monday night with a particular story about the tricolour. Michael, you, you might be interested to see. All right, so you're not going to give us any more about that, so we have to watch if we want to see it. Is that what you're saying, Alan? Yeah. <laughs> we'll we come back to the flight in a second. Uh, what I, I'll come back to you, actually, Alan, on this one, because the, the actual timeline of where he is and, and Colonel Fitzmaurice, in the history of aviation in itself, I, I mean, by the time he's getting himself interested in aviation, it's only a couple of years old since the Wright brothers, even. Exactly. And um, like I say, he, he grew up in, in Portleash in the early 1900s and um, uh, he would have uh, come across uh, his interest in aviation through association with a, a local garage in Portleash called the Aldrich Garage, where they actually were constructing an aircraft at the time. Right. He, yeah, he, he was coming home from school one day and he fell into Aldrich's garage and he was amazed at what he saw. And uh, from that, that moment onwards, he had a huge passion for aviation. Uh, it was the same time that Blerio was crossing the English Channel, like you said, a few years just after the Wright brothers. And um, he actually witnessed the Portleash plane, as it was no, it came to be called, taking off in a meadow in Portleash. And that's recounted in his, in his uh, biography, as Teddy will tell you. Uh, your, your chapter, Teddy, I think is called Aladdin's Cave, isn't that it? Which describes him seeing the, uh, the actual aircraft for the first time. Like, like many old garages at the time, I mean, Aldrich was one of the first in, in this part of the country. He, it was opened in 80, 1898. So the, the, the motor car was a very new invention at the time. When, when, and it was very, 
in its infant stages, even when Fitzmaurice was growing up, as you can imagine. But uh, all the garages at that time, they had so many diverse things to look at and to interest a young boy. And he was very interested. But when he saw this airplane being created, that was very fascinating for him. I, I want to spend a bit of time talking about this airplane uh, in a few minutes, but I also want to make sure we cover off uh, the event on Monday uh, as well, Anne. Yeah, if you can give us a rough idea, I suppose, of the, of the, the running order of the evening and, and what will happen. It starts at seven o'clock. Sure, it starts at 7 o'clock and uh, Teddy is going to introduce uh, our speakers. Uh, following that, we're going to have the short uh, presentation from the Air Corps that's uh, coming from Brigadier General Rory O'Connor. And um, f uh, after that, we will have uh, um, an input from the German ambassador, Her Excellency Mrs. Uh, Dijka Postel. So she's going to have an input on the event, obviously, with the German connection with Fitzmaurice and the Bremen. Uh, following that, uh, we have a very interesting uh, input from uh, Liam Byrne, who has, over the years, collected a lot of tributes and uh, memorabilia to do with uh, Fitzmaurice and the Bremen. Um, the, uh, we are going to have a short presentation from myself and Tim Costello to do with the Portlaoise plane, uh, where it came from, where it's at at the moment, and what our plans are. Uh, and uh, to conclude, we're going to have a um, so, sorry. We're going to have some um, input from some very uh, eminent uh, visitors from Bremen themselves, who were uh, instrumental in getting the Bremen aircraft back to uh, Bremen from the United States. Finishing off, then we'll have a very uh, interesting music piece. Uh, Martin Turish is a very prominent uh, composer uh, in Ireland, and he's been working with L Music Generation Leash in composing a symphony celebrating Fitzmaurice's life. And we'll hear Martin's story, and we'll hear a little bit from his composition to conclude the evening's event. Teddy's going to round up uh, along with Michael Parsons, the chairperson of the Heritage Council, and uh, hopefully we'll get it all done in the space of an hour an hour and a half on Monday night. We'll see how it goes. Two chances of that by the sound of it. Do you know, it's time we talked about the flight itself because it's referred to as the flight of the Bremen. Bremen was the name of the aircraft in this particular case. Uh, and there's a German connection. So, uh, Teddy, will you unpack that one for us? How in the first place was there a flight going from, in this particular case, uh, east to west? Because my memory of it was they were banned for many years. They weren't even allowed because they were so dangerous. That's right. It was banned in most European countries because... Uh, there were a number of attempts and um, 10 to 12 attempts and there was a number of fatalities on that and so people turned against it because the, the fear that it was uh, too experimental and too dangerous mm -hmm. and a waste of t uh, time, a waste of uh, money and a waste of lives. So um, the Germans uh, were anxious to recover some of their ground they had lost over the losing the, the First World War, coming out yeah. very badly out of it. And there was an attempt there to try and recover their, their, lost, their, their lost glory, shall we say, and especially in the air. Um, so they were anxious to set new records, and the, the biggest record to be set at that time, um, uh, the biggest breakthrough was to, to cross the Atlantic in the most difficult direction. Well, mm -hmm. as you know, Michael, uh, being a, an aviation man, crossing the Atlantic from the American side uh, is a different proposition. Obviously, the tailwinds and you're going mm -hmm. against the, 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 the prevailing winds. But there are a number of other um, uh, things as well, especially at a time when, when technology was so poor and that. Um, 
that the the American coastline was was very very hard to to to, to make out when you had no uh, uh, modern guide uh, on your plane. Mm. And um, but however, anyway, um, the east to west flight of the Atlantic was the thing that the Germans knew would capture the the world imagination in aviation. So they in the Junkers plant in Dessau, they constructed two planes to do this particular job. One was called the Europa and the other was called the Bremen. In 1927, remember the Atlantic had been flown the other way around by Alcock and Brown in 1919. So this was 1927, eight years afterwards. And that was a long time in the in the history of aviation, which was only, uh, hmm. shall we say, twenty little bit. Half skipping a jump, to be fair, yeah. So, so I mean, it's a long time. It shows you how difficult it was to go the other way around. Hmm. And uh, the Germans made an attempt in 1927, but a few year, a few a few hours out in the Atlantic, they met typical Atlantic storms, and decided to return which wasn't the easiest thing for pilots at the time to do. Mm. But it was a sensible thing because it saved their lives and it also saved the planes. Well, among uh, the, the, on, the, on one of the planes, on the Bremen, was um, a Captain Herman Cole. And Captain Herman Cole was, 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 was not put off by this at all. He reckoned that he reckoned it could be done and it could be done in his plane. So he attempted with the help of Baron von Hunfield, who bought the Bremen from the Dessau plant and uh, put it at the disposal of Captain Cole. And he decided to go along with him. He had some experience, shall we say, in flying, if not the qualifications. But he went along with him anyway, and, uh, and it worked out pretty well. But the problem is, was what you mentioned earlier, they couldn't fly from Germany. So they brought the plane to uh, the airport in um, Berlin and they wrote out, they wrote out a, 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 a writ that they, that they were going back to Dessau, flying to Dessau. So they set off for Dessau and ended up in Ireland. <laughs> By accident or on purpose? <laughs> Why Ireland? Ireland had a few advantages. Because Ireland was had no such bans on on international flights. Furthermore, it saved nine hours at the time of flying time, which was significant. And remember, this was against the prevailing winds, even from Germany to Ireland. Mm. But however, anyway, that they also had linked up earlier uh, through uh, not an ambassador, but a, a type of an ambassador from Germany who worked who worked with a, with, with a, a German firm in Ireland at the time, and they had arranged to meet Colonel Fitzmaurice, and the, this was arranged a few months earlier. Now this was a, pro- probably early in 1928, but um, the joint forces anyway. Fitzmaurice was the was the commanding officer at Baldonnell, so he had. The facilities there at his disposal, and the Germans had the plane, and they had a very good flying officer. What? what just for a second, talk about the airplane itself, because it was a metal construction, I think, wasn't it? 
it was an all steel construction, which which was which was one of the first all steel constructions at the time. It was uh, a monoplane, but it was a, it had only a single engine. So, mm. uh, do we know what speed it was able to fly at? It was able speed? to fly at something over a hundred miles an hour. But this this didn't it didn't work out going the other way. That was against against the Atlantic winds and against the Atlantic storms. Then sometimes they were going less than fifty miles an hour, and sometimes they were pra- pra- practically at a standstill. And 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 that story is is like it's fascinating that you could you could write many many novels about their experiences in the air because when they took off on the twelfth of April in nineteen twenty eight. It was 36 hours later wow. they, they reached American soil. Now, on their way, uh, they met many difficulties, such as oil problems, and they were always worried about the one engine. If the one engine cut out, well, that was... That was <laughs> you were getting your feet wet, definitely. As, as, yeah. as the, old, the old joke says, they'll be up there all night. <laughs> yeah, we know that one. <laughs> but around Newfoundland, the banks, the great banks of Newfoundland, there's 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 problems over 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 uh, compass problems and things like that, mm. and and their 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 one main instrument was their compass and 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 that didn't work properly and they went the the, the, the storms drove them off course, and they went five hundred miles off course during the, uh, the the black of night in in the midst of a storm, and when the storm uh, finished and 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 daylight and daylight appeared. Captain Cole had to use his his his, his flying senses, of course, uh, and uh, he knew exactly that they had gone in an orderly direction. The, he could see below at this stage himself and Fitzmaurice could see the the a great snowy wilderness beneath them, be, below them. But mm. and they turned down and they went down, uh, come come down southerly along the American coastline around the Labrador coastline. And eventually Fitzmaurice was, 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 was doing lookout and he saw what he thought was a lighthouse below. And uh, they, they came down closer and, and they realised, uh, sorry, they thought it was a ship that they had seen in, below. But they came down closer and, and, and then they saw that it was a lighthouse. So they knew that there was somebody, there must be somebody. A, a sense of relief at that stage, definitely. A sense of relief because there were 36 and a half hours in the air. They were running out of, of, of fuel at this stage. And by God, were they tired. And and, and, and they came down anyway. They came down on, on, on a place called Greenlee Island, which is a, a little island between Newfoundland and, and, the, and the province of Quebec in, in Canada. Mm. It was still a thousand miles from their destination, which was New York. But if you add the 500 miles that they went north and the 500 miles they came back, had their compass been working properly, had they been lucky enough with the weather, they would have reached their destination. Teddy, what was the reaction in Ireland when when the news got back? Uh, was, Was there celebration or was there indifference? There was more a sense of relief than anything <laughs> right. from, 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 from the people that really uh, were aware of what was happening, such as the people in Baldana who had, who had helped with the preparation for the flight, and such as with his family and friends. And, uh, but eventually, it became a worldwide story. 
and Ireland became part of that worldwide story. Mm. And the Irish people became more familiar with what had happened and and uh, were quite proud of that they had taken a significant part through Fitzmaurice in what had taken place. So th- there, was, there were big celebrations when he did come back to Ireland. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Alan, let's bring you back into the story here for a moment, because I'm curious as to how a man like yourself got in, interested in, in the man himself at all in, in, in Fitzmaurice. My, my background, uh, Michael, is in aircraft jet engine uh, overhaul and maintenance. So I would have started my career with Air Motive Ireland back in the day and uh, spent uh, 30 odd years working uh, on jet, jet engines uh, in both uh, customer support and commercial uh, in, in the facility in Ratcool. Uh, while I was there in the mid 80s, mid 90s, I should say, Lufthansa took a, a stake in the company from Aer Lingus. Uh, so we had a German connection straight away. And it was at the time that Teddy's uh, biography of Fitz came out. And of course, I was because I was from a Portish man, I knew Teddy <laughs> from playing golf in Mount Rat uh, back in the day uh, with my father and uh, the book uh, was of, of genuine interest to me and it was in that period 97 98 that I got to know the Fitzmaurice story in depth can say that it was in my radar pardon the pun prior to that but mm. uh, uh, yeah so one of the um, directors from Germany uh, was also interested in the story and I gave him a copy of Teddy's book on his retirement 
and his name was actually Cole, believe it or not, as well. And it's from that point onwards that I kind of got more uh, involved with Teddy. Uh, we, we spoke from time to time about it. And then really it kind of kicked off again for the 90th anniversary uh, when I got involved with Teddy to do the celebration in the um, Dunamis uh, Theatre in Portlaoise. And we got involved then in the Portlaoise Plain Project and we've been constantly in touch since then. Okay, so we better talk about this Portlaoise Plain because it is a fascinating story. Uh, and there's a lovely f- uh, picture that uh, probably may even appear uh, at your event uh, of the garage but with the, uh, the wings in the rafters. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I think the picture was taken in Aldrich's garage in the 1930s. And you can clearly see in the rafters, and you'll see it on Monday night as well, the wings of the plane um, hanging there. So this is, um, I'm guessing, like 20 years since it was constructed. And it stayed in those rafters. I think uh, Fitzmaurice came back to Portlaoise in the 1950s. And I think there's a quote uh, on Monday night where he says he had great recollection of, of seeing it. So this is... You know, this is 40 years afterwards. They're still in the rafters. It stayed there into the 1960s, uh, in the early 1970s. And then it disappeared. Uh, Nobody knew where it went to. And that was part of the story with myself and Teddy was to try and relocate it. Mm. Uh, there were stories that, that had gone down to a, a car museum in in, in um Killarney County Kerry. There was talk that it was scrapped. There was talk that it had gone to the UK to a collector. Yeah, so it, Teddy, Teddy was always on the hunt for it, if, mm-hmm. if I'm correct in saying. And uh, there's another um, Portlaoise man, Joe Rogers, who happened to be on holidays in the south coast of England back in the mid-2000s. And he was doing a tour of an automobile collection in the south coast of England. Lo and behold, he came across the Portlaoise plane in the rafters of a far-flung corner of this particular uh, site. And he wrote an article about it. Uh, when we started looking again, myself and Teddy, we came across the article and we made contact with the owners of the museum in the south coast of England and developed from there. Teddy, maybe you can add a bit. The man who owned the plane at that stage was a private collector and had, had a huge amount of stuff, uh, especially uh, old motor cars and boats and things and, 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 and some aviation material as well. But one of them was this plane that was in the rafters. But a collector like that, a private collector, is a collector. He generally doesn't sell things. Uh, that's the reason he collects them and keeps them. And uh, and he, I, I think that his grand, it started, started with his grandfather and his father. And his father actually acquired the plane. But Alan and myself, and of course, we're two very polite uh, Irish gentlemen, you know. <laughs> and we, <laughs> shall we say, and, 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 uh, but he could see that we were genuinely interested in this plane, all right. And uh, I think that we, 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 we won him over to think that uh, it wasn't really in the right place and mm. nothing was happening there. It would be great to have it back in Ireland. After, after, much, after much deliberation, he didn't actually give it away, I can tell you. No, I'm quite sure he didn't if, if he's a collector. But you have it. That's the important thing. We decided on a price, and I was very happy with the price. It was a considerable amount of money, but it was mm-hmm. worth getting back. But let's go back to the two lads in the garage in Port Leash, or Maryborough, as it probably was at the time. When, where did they get the plans? Where did they get the idea? And did it fly? Yeah, so the plans uh, would have come from the Aldred brothers' interest in mechanical items in general. And Louis and, and Frank Aldred would have read about, obviously, the Wright brothers. Uh, they would have read about Blerio. And 
there is, Teddy, correct me if I'm wrong, a story that they went to Liverpool to a, an aviation festival uh, and learned a, b- a bit about aircraft there. They came back and the Blerio was probably the model they worked off of. Uh, it's very similar to the Blerio airplane. Uh, so they started constructing uh, very, very skillful craftsmen in mud. They constructed the aircraft uh, from, from local timber. They also used, and if you'll see it in the photographs, some bamboo uh, for the wing structure. And that came from Ballyfin Estate, which is now a famous hotel. It used to be uh, the Patrician College in, in Ballyfin. So mm. there is a local connection there with the material that was used. Uh, the engine was, was sourced locally as well. Tonge and Taggart uh, constructed the engine casings. Unfortunately, that has uh, disappeared. It, uh, we're not sure where it went to, but we're constructing a replica as part of the uh, restoration process based on the, uh, the Wright Brothers model and based on what's uh, described in Teddy's book. So, yes, yeah, local, local materials, local know-how. The, the, the Aldred Brothers actually were also involved in mechanical items for Ardna Crusher at the time. So not only in aviation and cars, but they were also involved in power generation. So very, very mechanically minded and engineering minded. I suppose the equivalent would be people who love their technology now. These were the, the techies of the time, weren't they? They also were the first in the country to build a car. They built two cars. This was before Henry Ford came in and built them on a large scale. <laughs> <laughs> Did it fly? Well, that is the question. <laughs> and the, the thing about it is, how do you describe or how do you qualify flying as we all know that we're into that like you know it's more the landing than the takeoff i'm worried about yeah there is there is there is a a process all right that you have to qualify and probably it doesn't qualify on all grounds but but we can read fitzmorris himself who was who in his writings was was highly he was he 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 was very accurate in what he he said he was very careful with his words in, in his writings and that and he does describe how the plane took off, how he'd seen it, and that inspired him, as, as, as Alan mentioned earlier, to, to, for, his, for his lifelong um, uh, enthusiasm for aviation. Mm. So he saw it actually taking off. It didn't, it didn't stay too long in the air. We, 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 we assume that, but we're not claiming anything further than that, except that our most famous aviator saw it taken to the air. <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> and he seemed, and he seemed to be be be, be, be struck with awe at, at seeing it doing that. So I mean, it, it, it got into the air at least anyway. Well, we know it also landed and ended up in the rafters, Alan. <laughs> it landed. It landed yeah. in a pretty rough because he said that it was in a, it was tangled up when it came down. You know. Right. Right. Now, we, we, in the interesting uh, part of that is that uh, uh, a couple of years back. Um, a student from Queen's University, Belfast, contacted us and uh, he independently had heard about the Portlaoise plane and was doing a final year project on it. And uh, we've kept in touch. He finished his project last year. He, he actually worked on putting the Portlaoise plane design into a flight simulator up in Queen's University, Belfast. And he was able to reenact the flight of the Portlaoise plane. And you'll hear more about that on Monday night. Mm. Um, 
the centre of gravity was the issue. I think right. the engine was yeah. maybe just a little bit off the centre of gravity, and that may have caused the, the hard landing, as we call it, uh, uh, when mm. the attempt took place. But he, he moved the centre of gravity in the flight simulator and made a successful flight. So it's ah, an interesting okay. part of the story, too. So they might have found that out. Uh, I'd love to talk a little bit, too, and give a name check to the people involved in the restoration, because these are no amateurs. Well, uh, when we brought back the plane to... Uh, Ireland, we we uh, warehoused it in in uh, in, uh, in Dublin for a while uh, uh, until we see until we, we we put a plan into operation, shall we say? And we invited various people that would be interested in it to have a look at it and that, and uh, and this was amazing the amount of people with uh, aviation experience that came that were really fascinated by what they saw. All was there was a shell, and you. And I, I think Alan will show that uh, what it looked like when it came back. An expensive shell, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but however, however, anyway, amongst those who came to see it was a man called Brendan O'Donoghue and another called Johnny Malloy. And these two gentlemen were retired from the Irish Air Corps and had been uh, employed by also by Aer Lingus. But they mm. were engaged, they had been engaged some years before that in restoring the Uller. The Uller. I knew they knew the names, yes. Yeah. So, so the Uller was the first uh, plane that was used by Aer Lingus. And uh, so they had experience in, in, in restoration. And mind you, when we heard that, we were very interested in both Brendan and mm. Johnny. And the first time they saw the plane, they, they saw what was there, the shell. Mm. They couldn't figure it out. No, couldn't, nothing there to... To, 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 for us to work on, you know, really. So when, when Brendan went back to his, to his home in, in Enfield, he kept thinking about what he had seen and, and something, something crossed his mind over the tail and, and that, that, that there was something here to look at. So he came down a second time and he was absolutely gobsmacked when he started putting things together. Well, after a little bit of, I mean, he didn't need any further encouragement. <laughs> I think he volunteered that he'd help out whatever way he could. He couldn't guarantee anything. And, 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 and with the help of Johnny, Johnny Malloy, Johnny, who had huge experience in, in that field as well, and the two of them, and they, they looked at this from A to a Z and, and everywhere around, and, and they decided that, yes, yes, we'll have a go. And... That's where it started. Yeah, and there was two other guys on the team as well, Michael, not to, not to forget them. We had a, a very, very uh, uh, good engineer from, from Emo and County Leash called John Harris, who helped with the undercarriage uh, kind of re reconstruction. And of course, not to forget our project manager, Tim Costello, ah, Tim, who uh, yeah. had, a, had a, a great input into the uh, uh, restoration as well. Eamon is another Port Leash native uh, who uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see on, on the presentation on Monday night. And, and Eamon worked with uh, our friend uh, from Q Queen's University, Belfast, to help him understand the plane and, and get his project off the road. 
Alan, where will this end up? Uh, and, you know, let, let's roll it to, to, to the future. Uh, all being well, COVID out of the way, what's the plan? The plan is, is to bring it back to Portleash uh, on permanent display. We have a temporary home at the moment, kindly donated by Leash County Council, but we are looking for a permanent home. Uh, we'd like to bring Fitzmaurice and the Portleash plane together in a, a display for the public in Leash and for, for Ireland and to commemorate not just the Portleash plane, but more importantly, Fitzmaurice and his connection with Portleash as well. Teddy, did you ever get to meet Colonel Fitzmaurice? No, no, he was dead before I had an interest really in him. And if you could, what would you ask him? Well, funny enough, I never met a man, mm. but I feel that I have been friendly with him since I was very, very young, such as my interest has been since since I got to know about him. But I did get to know his daughter very well. He had, he had one child, daughter, whom uh, he brought to America with with with, with uh, his his wife and his daughter went to America during the celebration for the celebrations. Mm. But I met his wife afterwards, and and she and she helped me very much in the in 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 finding out who Fitz was and what was he really like and that. Uh, unfortunately, Fitz and his wife broke up uh, not many years after the flight. But but still, uh, Patricia w- w- felt very close to her father, and uh, she lived in she lived in England. Unfortunately, she's dead now, maybe ten or fifteen years. But she was a lovely lady, and she took a huge interest in everything about her father, uh, and helped everybody concerned here with the Fitzmaurice projects, including myself for the book. And she came to Ireland a few times, and we entertained her in Portlaoise here, on uh, the uh, perhaps the seventieth anniversary of of the flight. And we unveiled uh, a lovely bust here, and it's on display in the foyer in Leash County Hall still. We also have a square, which I was involved in myself in, in its naming, called after Colonel James Fitzmaurice, right in the middle of town. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on Squawk 7000. A reminder again that the event is on this Monday, the 12th of April at uh, 7 o'clock. Uh, it's an Eventbrite, I think. Is it, Alan? Is that where people will find it? It is, it is indeed. There's an Eventbrite link and uh, there's also a Fitzmaurice Facebook page. We'll be streaming live on Facebook as well as doing the Zoom Eventbrite uh, um, event. Um, hope to see you all there for that. And uh, if anybody's interested, uh, we have Portleash Plain at Gmail com we also have a twitter account uh, famous fits a famous flight so yeah there's lots of social media there that you can catch up on the fit story on the port leash story and uh, like i said hope to see you all on monday night and we'll put links uh, to all of those that you mentioned there alan in the program notes for this particular uh, program as well alan Phelan and teddy fennelly thank you so much for joining us on long final thanks michael thanks mike And thank you for joining us on this episode of Long Final from Squawk7000.ie. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and do tell your friends.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.